got to wrap up about six or seven weeks on the road where I was only home for a few days in that amount of time. I played in Indianapolis and got to see an awful lot of old friends, had a sold out show, really good crowd. I got to talk to all my old friends about five seconds apiece. There were so many people to talk to, but it was a good time. And I went up to Chicago. My buddy Todd came along with me and uh, rode along. And we had us a nice little visit up there. Saw some old friends. Came back home, and I went over to Knoxville. So I had to meet a couple friends over there and uh, hang out a little bit. And the next morning, I woke up, and I decided I would go to this little roadside attraction. There's a man in eastern Tennessee who has spent the last 21 years of his life building a castle. He calls it his fortress of faith. And I decided I wanted to see that, but I didn't realize it was in the middle of nowhere. I mean, literally in the middle of nowhere. I drove out there and have to drive through these country roads and you end up on a dirt road. I pulled up and there he was. He was a really nice man. He gave me a tour of his place. But as I'm walking around, it's a, starting to get a little bit creepy. I realize he's a stranger, although he was a very nice man. I realized nobody knew where I was, and I try to do everything I can to remain safe on the road. And part of that is to always make sure that somebody knows where I am. And he asked me if I would like to see the torture room and kind of went in there, and it looked a little bit creepy. I started getting creeped out, and I thought, man, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go ahead and head on down the road a piece and I'll get me a friend to go back with me next time and I'll spend a little more time there so I got out of there and uh you know like I said it was a really fun nice place but it wasn't exactly the smartest thing that I've done but I look forward to going back maybe when I have my best buddy Todd and Amy with me but uh, I ended up getting sick been pretty run down from all the time on the road and my voice went away completely. It's just now coming back. If my voice sounds strange, I apologize. But uh, that's just the way life is sometimes on the road. Hi friends, this is Otis Gibbs, and you're listening to Thanks for Giving a Damn. I'm sitting here in my living room in East Nashville. This is a personal journal. This is a bit of an experiment. I like to say right up front that I haven't the slightest idea what I'm doing, but I decided to do it anyway. And this show was founded with the idea that there are only two people in art that matter. There's the creative individual and the person experiencing it, and everything else is an artificial filter. This is a way for me to share things with you guys without any filters whatsoever. My guest this week is Mac Wiseman. Mac is a singer and a songwriter and a guitar player. He's been inducted into the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame and the Country Music Hall of Fame. You can find out everything you need to know about Mac at MacWiseman.com. In just a few minutes, you're going to hear Mac tell a story about his mother writing down lyrics to songs as she heard them on the radio into a notebook into a lot of notebooks actually mac has made an album out of these songs and uh, it's called songs from my mother's hands and it's really really good i've been listening to it an awful lot and my buddies peter cooper and tom yutz produced that and they made this 
interview possible. So I really appreciate them hooking this up. And Mac invited me into his living room here in Nashville. And it was just such a beautiful thing to get to sit there and listen to all of these stories. He's done so much in his lifetime. He's been part of so many great things that there's no way that I could, you know, do a proper biography. So I just asked him if uh, he would tell some stories and pointed him in a few directions. And man, he has a whole lot of stories. This is a man who has truly lived. I hope you guys enjoy this. Here's Mac Wiseman. Okay, let me ramble a little bit. Uh, I was raised up in the Shenandoah Valley, Virginia, right in the heart of the valley, near the foot of the Blue Ridge Mountains, and we were, I came up through the Depression, so we're kind of dog-eat-dog, raise what you eat, and swap eggs for a little coffee and sugar. But uh, around the age of 13, I got my first guitar. It was a monster, a 395 job from Sears. <laughs> Had a neck in it like a wagon tongue. <laughs> 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 I like to never got the darn thing in tune, but a old minister came through and held a revival, and he tuned it for me. And I think it was out of tune before he got out of sight. <laughs> <laughs> I had uh, polio when I was a kid, real small, and uh, uh, I had worked on the farm diligently to help the the family, of course. But when I was about 13, I had some corrective surgeries done on that foot and leg. So that I had to lay up with a cast on it that summer. That's uh, how I had time to learn to play the guitar a little bit. My dad had the first of... Hand-wound phonograph, the first radio in our community. And I still have them, incidentally. He bought them in 1927, I guess. But uh, uh, everybody liked music in my home. I had three siblings, my mom and dad. But my mom was the only one that was um, well-versed at all. She went to a Stamps-Baxter seminar-type school for a couple of weeks and could read and write uh Shape notes. She played the pump organ and in our home as well as in church and later the piano. But she was my, she could tell my interest was genuine and she supported that. Plus, with the polio, they wanted to get me into something that I could do without stumbling over rocks and bushes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you had these old spiral. Notebooks. We worked very hard in the summertime with gardening and little hay and cows and stuff like that. But in the wintertime, when it was too cold to work outside, she'd sit in front of that radio with her spiral notebooks and crochet and quilt. And, and all the music was live back in those days. So she'd leave her pad and pencil up on that radio and and we listened to various live radio programs locally, and she'd get a few lines or a verse or something, put her book back up, and a few days later they'd repeat it, you know. I have a treasure of those. They got 13 composition books in her very legible handwriting, and uh, that's where all these new songs, new recording songs came from. They're old songs, but a new effort on my part. What are some of the songs that are in this? Uh... Oh, we did things like Lampadotting Time in the Valley, I Heard My Mother Call My Name in Prayer, Eastbound Train, Old Rattler, and uh, 
Blue Ridge Mountain home, things of that nature. Some of them in the answer to the wildwood flower, answer to the great speckled bird. A few of these never been recorded before. It's got to be a beautiful thing to have something like that in your mother's oh, handwriting. Oh, it is. And uh, I was able, after all these years, to dedicate this project to her. It's called uh, Songs from My Mother's Hands. And uh, I just paid tribute to her in this project. I've recorded over 800 songs in my time, and uh, so uh, I uh, was glad to be able to dig these out and do them. Oh, yeah, he was one of my favorites. Uh, that was one thing my mother would do in the morning, mid-morning, out of uh, New York City on a forget the name of the red the network now seemed like it was red or blue or something but Bing had a 15 minute uh, radio show followed by Wolf Carter Montana Slim and I'd be working in the garden or something by, at that time and she'd say it's about time we took a little break and I'd come in and sit under the apple tree and she'd put the wind up and I'd listen to those so I was greatly influenced by that cross section and then later uh I went to college and uh, majored in radio. I was able to get it. It was taught by the program director on the local radio station. And uh, during the war, and one of his head men were was, dra was drafted, and he approached me about taking a full-time job on the station. So I worked 16, 70 hours a week. Doing, it was a disc jock. We played record, but there were transcriptions out of New York, big bands and stuff. I became as well versed in Artie Shaw and the Dorseys and people like that as uh, was the country artist, you know. And back to your question about the, I did listen to the Opry and uh, it was just a institution. I remember when Acuff came to the, the Opry and the uh, instrumental bands and such as that Uncle Dave making. Had the pleasure of working a number of tours with Uncle Dave. But there were other stations, too. I guess most of the stations were clear channel back then. Because Jacksonville, Florida had a big barn desk that we could get clearly. Hopkinsville, Kentucky had one. And Chicago, of course. And later, Renfro Valley. So uh, Saturday night, we had the old wet cell batteries. And uh, my dad was smart enough. He had two. We'd run one down, and he... Had a homemade windmill charging the other one <laughs> that he cut out of a barrel head. So uh, and with the generator on it, he was quite a makeshift mechanic. But uh, we'd be running one down and charging the other one. You know? <laughs> well, they were working for Bill Monroe at the time in the... Uh, Mid-40s, in 1946, I worked with Molly O'Day, recorded the first 16 sides with her in Chicago. We had to drive up there because, believe it or not, those studios in Nashville. And uh, we went up around Thanksgiving of 46, and I played bass on 16 sides with Molly. And uh, the next year, they opened a station in Bristol, WCYB and, and started a noontime program, a two-hour program called Farm and Fun Time. And I was invited to 
showing that staff. It was a limited three acts on it, the uh, Stanley Brothers, uh, myself and my band, and a local fellow, Curly King, who did a lot of Eddie Arnold style. And it was there that uh, I found out later when they would leave Nashville coming up east to play dates, Monroe uh, would go to sleep as soon as he got the car. But he'd tell the boys, now, well, we get up around Bristol, wake me up. I want to hear that boy. So uh, that's how Flatt and Scruggs became acquainted with me. And uh, in the spring of 48, when they organized, they called and asked me to, to join them. So I was one of the original Forky Mountain boys and made their first records with them on Berkeley in the fall of 48. And uh, while we were doing that noontime show, it was customary when the acts came through and played venues like the theaters and courthouses and stuff, they'd come on the local radio station to advertise their engagements, you see. And right on the air one day, Bill came on and did our program, and right on the air he said uh, to me, he said, if you ever want a job on the Grand Ole Opry, get in touch with me. Made Lester very ticked off. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I left them and went to Atlanta to the barn dance in the spring of 49. And uh, that barn dance closed, and I called Bill to ask if his offer was still available. He, he come right on in. We were great friends. I never had a cross word. I've seen him cut some people down that give me chills. I'm not kidding. He was very crude and a very uh, self-centered person, introverted person. And uh, in his talks with me, it went back to his childhood. He was the youngest of uh, four or five brothers that all played music, and he had a little eye defect that they were ashamed of and wouldn't let him pick with them. That's where he went to dance his horseback with Uncle Penn and played the mandolin and things of that nature. So the fact that he was uh, shunned by them, uh, he never forgot that you see and uh, he could have been a much more mighty man early in his career had he taken direction or had representation but nobody was going to tell him what to do so his brother booked some dates and a lot of them came in by phone And but had he had some management in those early days he would have been a monster he was anyhow but uh, would have been much bigger and he pouted, pouted a lot when Flat and Scruggs left. And he uh, replaced them with good people. They never would have noticed, noticed the difference, you know. Well, when I first came, I met him in Huntsville, Alabama on a Friday night of Easter weekend. And he had an old uh, custom-made stretch uh, Packard. And... Uh, Don Reno was with him at the time and some others. And uh, we came on into Nashville, did the opera that Saturday night. And then Sunday we left out, played Indianapolis, oddly enough, and went on up the Midwest uh, with, uh, with a band. And Uncle Dave Bacon was on the, shore, on the show. And uh, Kirk McGee, uh, Sam and Kirk McGee, uh, was chauffeuring him around so the old gent could rest in the back seat. Well, at the end of the tour... Anxious to get back to Nashville. By this time, Bill had an old city bus he'd bought in Florida or something that would break your back. And we had to take turns <laughs> of driving the darn thing. 
But uh, Reno and I came up with the idea that we'd help Kirk drive, which was a long drive back from Illinois or somewhere, if we could ride back with him. So uh, that's what we did. And uh, uh, later on, Bill had a new uh, Kaiser. And uh, sometimes uh, it was on again, off again. He'd drive Don's Dodge and just a number of things, you know. Couple old buses. He carried a ball team on the road and uh, had had a good ball team. We played a lot of good teams in Texas and various places. We, and he had the Vanderbilt ball players. They'd be on vacation in the summer, and he just load up a load of those. They, they were good players. <laughs> we won a heck of a lot of games. Did Bill Monroe play in these games? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah he sure did. String bean and. A <laughs> uh, number of the uh, Jackie Phelps, uh, uh, several of uh, George Wilson II, and, uh, and, but the most of them were the Vanderbilt players, the pitchers and the hitters. The ringers. Yeah. It was very interesting. When you talk about touring, um, I-65 hadn't been, you know, No, interstate. I've quite frequently, my heyday uh, with records and uh, personal appearance was in the, the entire 50s and early 60s. And a number of people in recent years have asked me what kind of bus I had. And I said, I didn't have no darn bus because there wasn't any highways you could drive them on. <laughs> they were all two-lane mountainous roads, and some of them you run your battery down, uh, blowing your own horn. <laughs> hey, gosh. But we would get an atlas and map out your ride, and, with the condition of the roads, condition of the roads, I uh, figured my pace or my traveling time uh, approximately fifty miles an hour. Some roads are straight enough; you could do a little more than that, but there's others a lot less than that. So uh, that was about the average. If we go to hundred miles, we'd allow a couple of hours to do that same. Did you have the hotels arranged ahead of time, or? Yeah, and it was mostly hotels of pre motel uh, era, and uh, we stayed at a lot of the uh, same old hotels because of the expense and the accommodations that the salesmen, the drummers, and people like that stayed in. They were clean and nice, but they weren't holiday inns. But uh, that was the pattern, and. Uh, Stayed them all over the south with Monroe and in the Midwest. And uh, Flat and I and Scruggs and I first organized, we stayed in an old hotel in uh, Bristol for a month or two before we found accommodations for our families, you know. Yeah. Do you remember the name of that? Uh, well, the, whole, the radio station was in the most modern one in town, the Shelby Hotel. It was in the lower level of the Shelby. And... Uh, very nice studios, and a nice hotel is still there. Yeah, yeah, right down near the railroad track. And it's a, but a lot of them are built near the depots because of the people coming and going. You know. I was here at the Opry and on the Opry the night he made his first appearance here, and uh, the story about his doing five encores is true. I stood in the wings and watched that, and he finally just had to walk off. They, they wouldn't sit down and shut up, you know. But uh, I was in Shreveport, Louisiana, on the Louisiana Hayride in 1951, and he 
kind of acted up here at the Opry, and they fired him. So he came back down there, and I became uh, much better acquainted with him there than I did here in Nashville. But uh, on Saturday night, we had a nice restaurant there with a back room that they most of the cast from the Hayride would gather, and we'd commune and visit, you know. And uh, I did a lot of touring with Hank, the package shows. Back at, in the 40s, uh, when he was first here, there was a promoter called uh, Les Hutchins. And rather than have uh, four or five groups in individual cars, he would charter a trailway bus and put them all on so that they'd be showing up at the same time. No bunks, no badges, loaded the seats and caught a nap here and there. But uh, we was out on 20-day tours with Hank, Lonzo and Oscar, Jimmy Dickens and Monroe's band. That was quite a quite a show, you know. And we played everywhere from Minneapolis to Lake Charles, Louisiana. And, uh, so it was quite an experience. In fact, Bill and I were awake on the bus one night and uh, helped Hank write uh, I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry. We never got any credit for it, but we had a few lines. <laughs> what lines did you guys add? Oh, I don't remember. Hank had it started. I was, Hear that lonesome whippoorwill, so blue that I could cry. Do you remember whereabouts you guys were when? Uh, we were going from uh, Minneapolis to Lake Charles, I believe. It was an overnight gig, you know. Was there drinking on that bus? Well, uh, Dickens and uh, some of the guys uh, had it, but I never saw Hank take a drink. Never did. Toured with him all those times at the Shreveport. Now, I know some of those horror stories are true. Thought he was a binge drinker, apparently. But I never saw him. I've seen him refuse it, turn it down, because he knew if he had one, he'd continue, you know. But I never saw the man take a drink. I never saw him rude to anyone. Great sense of humor. Very professional. Very real. That's what, that was his secret. He was just... Himself, you see, he didn't care to be anyone else or make believe he was anyone else, and so talented. How did he relate to the crowds? Was he really good at oh, live in front he, of his magnetism was unreal. For instance, they had a call show was a big package show that that Bettison show, you know, and uh, they had people like Johnny Ray and Bob Hope and uh, Hank Williams and. Just you name it. And, uh, of course, Hope was the big star and was close to the show. But after a couple of nights, he wouldn't follow Hank Williams. <laughs> Hank had, honest to God, Hank had to close the show because once he got out there, that was it, you know. That's true. Very true. Bob Hope was huge, too, then. Oh, yeah. I had the pleasure of working uh, the University of New Mexico with Bob one time, just he and I. And it was a wonderful experience, yeah. You know, we never have the opportunity to chat with folks that were no, actually No, that actually around. knew him. That's true. So I apologize if I ask a couple more questions about him, but uh, it's very interesting to... One little thing that I, I think is noteworthy that amused me, Hank and uh, Jimmy Davis, ex-governor of Louisiana, were out on Caddo Lake in Shreveport. They're fishing, one in each end of the boat with their backs to each other 
and Hank was in his cups pretty good. And uh, Jimmy said he was fishing. He kept looking out on the water. There was money floating around all over. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't know where it was coming from. And he looked up. Hank was fishing for his cigarette lighter and pulling money out. <laughs> just throwing it in the Rick Creek. <laughs> that's a true story. Yeah. <laughs> Did you ever spend any time around Miss Audrey? Oh, yeah. I went to a lot of her house parties where they lived out there on the Brentwood. Yeah, I was invited to those a number of times. They were something else, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Huge crowds. Now you, I'd leave early because they could get pretty raunchy, you know. Yeah. Well, who were some of the people that might show up to those parties? Oh, gosh, just anybody. Uh, I remember uh, Rex Allen's son was always there. and uh, Well, most of the notables in Nashville were invited, you know. Hank hated their parties. Uh, one time, uh, this was supposed to be a true story as well, uh, she was throwing a big dinner to impress businessmen that she thought she should impress. And Hank, again, was in his cups pretty good, came down and sat at the head of the table. And uh, she was forcing him to do it because presenting him, you see, when the pastor mashed potatoes, he just got a handful and put them on his plate. <laughs> he blew that party. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, he brought Ray Price to the to Nashville. Hank did. So met him in Texas. And... Uh, for lack of a better place to live, uh, Ray and his wife lived upstairs at Hank's house. Well, Hank would get in his cups and take his pistol and shoot the wall and shoot up through the floor. <laughs> <laughs> so Ray's wife was scared to death. So Ray went down to Mr. Cooper at the Union and asked if it wasn't something he could do to get Hank to stop shooting his pistol in the house. <laughs> Mr. Cooper said, I got nothing to do with him shooting his pistol in the house. <laughs> hey, gosh. When you were doing these package shows, I'm guessing his talents were obvious, but did you have any idea that his music would live on as long as it has? Oh, I was, wasn't a bit surprised. In fact, uh, had his career been long, he died right at the height of his career. And uh, he's still a monster, I'm telling you. He's... He, Barry Comos and people like that who were my big favorites come and go, but Hank's still a visible. He's very visible, you know. Yeah. Can you tell me how you heard about his passing? Yep, very well. Uh, I wasn't around him too much when he was having that severe back problem and such, but I was doing an early morning radio show in Baltimore, Maryland for a car dealer down on Lafayette Street. It had a 7 o'clock show that was remoted over a local radio station. And I went down that uh, New Year's morning to do my radio show, and they announced that they found him dead in his car in Oak Hill. And it, it just stunned me, even though I knew he was in bad health. I didn't expect that, you see. They took him back to Montgomery to bury him. That's where the big service was, you know. He was the first guy, Jim Denny was booking him, he was the first, it was nearly all percentage jobs back then. 
for small guarantees, you see. But Hank was the first guy out of Nashville, to my knowledge, that uh, was could demand $1,000 a day in the early 50s. and uh, That's a lot of money in the oh, early 50s. Oh, it was back then, indeed so. But to give you an example of his drawing power, I worked Sunset Park a lot off of my show in Baltimore. It was one of the larger entertainment parks in Pennsylvania. And the old gentleman came to me. I had my first records out and made a deal with me that I'd play his park every Sunday that I was in books of morels. And uh, that summer I I played those parks 26 consecutive Sundays. Well, the first date that uh, Hank got the $1,000 for was at the Sunset Park. They never did get them all in. His night show was over, and he was leaving, and people were still lined up trying to get in the park. That's how fabulous he was, you know. In traffic jams, they couldn't turn around and leave because <laughs> the road is too narrow, you know. I guess my last question is when you talked about how Bill Monroe was, did he feel threatened by Hank Williams on these patent package shows, or did they get along? No, they, they got along, and each one was a powerhouse in his own right, you know. And uh, they respected each other. Uh, like I say, I did a lot of package shows with Hank, and uh, I, I can't remember any occasion where that there was professional jealousy. One little incident I'd like to share. Uh, it was customary back then when we had those package shows that you wouldn't feature any of the artist's material on your portion of the show. Well, I had learned six more miles from Molly O'Day and had forgotten that it was written by Hank, you know. And uh, we were in Minneapolis again. And uh, I went out and did my portion ahead of him, and he was standing in the wings to come on. And without thinking, I did six more miles. And when I came off, I was embarrassed to death because I remembered it was his. But his comment was very left-handed complimentary. He said, I'll never do that GD song again. (laughs) 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 He liked the way I did it, you know. I'd like to thank everybody for listening in, and I'd like to thank Mac for inviting me into his living room here in Nashville. Next week will be part two, and we're going to lean real heavy on Johnny Cash stories, Maybell Carter, and John Prine stories, so you definitely don't want to miss that. If you'd like to help support this show, just go to OtisGibbs.com, and you can pick up a CD, a T-shirt, you can download any record I've ever made, you can buy one of my photographic prints, you can buy one of Amy's records, You can buy one of Amy's children's books. But anything that you buy, we'll mail from our living room to yours, and we'll even put in a little thank you note. If you'd like to help out but you're a little short on cash, just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Subscribe while you're there, and you'll get a brand new episode free every Wednesday. But if you enjoy this show, or you enjoy my music, or you enjoy Amy's music, please take the time to tell a friend and help us spread the word. And if you'd like to send us a message, we'd love to hear from you. Just send it to info at otisgibbs.com. I'm Otis Gibbs. Thanks for giving a damn.